previously on Flowers for Zoe, Stories for Dennis. As a parent, I'm bigger and wiser and kind. My job is to keep you alive, keep you safe, nurture and love you and teach you. And now coming up on the show. The way your dad died is not your fault, Zoe. And I want you to hear loud and clear, like you didn't do anything wrong. You're his kid. It wasn't your job to take care of your dad. It was your dad's job to take care of you. On today's podcast, we discuss the passing of our beloved brother and Zoe's father, Dennis, and discover we are all grieving differently. Today's podcast is about grief. If you find anything from today's show activating, please reach out and talk to somebody. If you find our discussion helpful, please share the link with others. Before we get into today's topic, I just want to say how much I loved the last episode. And (laughs) we all say this, but it feels like there's so much more to talk about. And I just wanted to say we're going to do that. Yes, it will all come up eventually throughout the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about grief. Yeah, and I've I've been thinking about this topic because we've, we've talked about wanting to do a podcast episode on grief and loss. You know, we're approaching the one-year memorial of losing Dennis. And so when I think about that, I want to talk about grief because this has been a, a year of grieving for all of us. And at the same time, we're podcasting about the topic of fentanyl addiction and recovery. And what I struggle with is I want to celebrate my brother's life without always having to attach it to losing him because of drug overdose. What about the people that are not ready to hear about grief? And I think of all the parents that I'm in NA family meetings with, I don't want to talk about grief there because they're facing that real decision about do we kick him out or do we let him stay? When it comes to stuff like that, everybody is at their own stage, right? So let me read you something that I found online. And this is published by Hospice and Community Care, prepared by Pathway Center for Grief and Loss. And I went searching for stages of grief. But what I found online published by these folks is losing a loved one to drug overdose. And I'm just going to read you this passage. If you have experienced the death of a loved one from accidental drug overdose, your reactions and emotions may be unlike anything you have ever experienced. You are not only left with the devastation of the loss, but there may also be feelings of veiled guilt, shame, discomfort, or anger. Society treats this death in a much different manner than death from any other natural cause, often creating a stigma difficult for you to navigate and uncomfortable for others. It is important for you to know that the following responses are common. Even if you have experienced some of these, please know that the intensity and the duration often change and lessen over time. So they list a bunch of things. There may be sadness over not having a chance to say goodbye to somebody. There may be a feeling of helplessness that you could not protect your loved one. Feelings or fears of judgment from others regarding you, your family, and your deceased loved one. You may be struggling with unanswered questions and the need to understand how this happened. 
and it goes on. That's only like the first five, but even those first five, they all resonate with me and maybe they resonate with you too. Oh, they do. Definitely. I got stuck on the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sadness over not having a chance to say goodbye. Because if we know that somebody's life is winding down, we maybe have that chance. But with Dennis, we didn't. Honestly, I I have a hard time with this topic because I, um, I don't know why. I just feel okay. And what do you mean? I don't know how to say it. I, I feel at ease. I feel at ease. I don't worry about him. I miss him, but I understand where he is. But I feel, I just, I feel okay. Sometimes there can be grief and loss and we can miss somebody and we can also have the feeling of relief that they're either not suffering or that whatever was happening has now come to an end. To me, I look at my brother like he's done it. He's done this thing called life and he's on to bigger and better things. What was it about his life where you get to feel that now? It was, it was a combination of his wisdom and his, his grace. That's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. That's beautiful. He was good at life mm-hmm. in so many ways. And uh, I'm still perplexed as to why drugs got him. I think I understand it. I do. I think I understand it. I love how when we talk about him, we're talking about him through the lens of losing someone that we love to a drug overdose. But as soon as we start to talk about him we really just begin celebrating him in his life yeah and I guess there's part of me that wants to really highlight that because his story is not about how things ended it's about him as a person and what he brought into the world like we celebrate him and there's also a conversation here about supporting somebody and supporting families mm-hmm. with substance use and always walking the line. And we did that with Dennis, whether we did it well or not, you know, we were always walking a line. There was always a line. So for me, I, I mean, I agree. He did know how to live well. Yeah. He, right. He saw beauty in things like he was poetic. If you looked at his doodles, he was poetic. You know, he wrote about things that were difficult and you know, and he noticed things that were beautiful. He noticed beauty all yeah. around him. And he was compassionate. He was one of the most compassionate people I've ever known. So where am I in my grief process if, I, if I'm okay with him not being here? We could just look at some of the phases of grief. What we know and understand about grief has come from a few different theorists. There's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote about five stages of grief. She talked about stages of a grieving process. Some of these stages would include things like denial, and that 
sometimes in those early experiences with grief, we can deny that things are happening. We have this need to kind of minimize this overwhelming pain and loss that's happening in our life and that we're processing the reality of our loss. And we're also trying to survive in this emotional pain. So there can be this feeling of denying what's happening and pushing it away and just not being willing to, to process it fully. And then another stage you know, whether these go linear or not is moving into this anger stage where we're, we're trying to adjust to this new reality. And we're usually experiencing some extreme emotional discomfort. So we have big emotions and there's so much to process and, and we feel vulnerable in it. And so anger, you know, anger is this big emotion that sometimes feels a little safer than vulnerability. And so we can go to anger. It allows us to like express emotion but there's less judgment and less rejection with it because, you know, we're just allowed to be angry. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about bargaining. This is when we're like coping and we were feeling kind of like we direct our requests to a higher power or we might be making promises. So if you think about if grieving begins when somebody is kind of, you know, in end of life, um, we might, part of that bargaining might be, trying to make promises with God. Like if you let this person heal, or if you, if you allow this person to live, then I'm going to turn my life around. So bargaining can be, you know, feeling kind of helpless in a moment and wanting some sense of control over what's happening. And then she talks about depression as being a part of a grieving stage where we're processing grief and we start to really feel the loss of the loved one more the panic or like the overwhelm starts to subside. And so what we're kind of left with is the heaviness and the the depth of the loss. It becomes a little more inward. Our sadness is more inward rather than that outward expression of like, you know, whether we're denying it or bargaining or being angry, it's a quieter kind of sadness. We might retreat. We might feel a little less social. We might be doing a lot more of like inner searching and processing and just feeling the loss of have, not having that person or accepting, you know, what this new reality without them. And that's her last stage is, is acceptance that, um, that we ultimately get to a place of acceptance that we, you know, we can still feel the loss and we can miss the person, but it doesn't, we don't feel it in the, the same painful type of way. Um, that's where I thought I was. Do you feel like you went through some stages of grief? Yeah, I think I went through uh, anger, um, anger at myself, a lot of anger at myself. And I went through the negotiation, thinking, if only I did this, if only I did that, um, things could have been different. Is that, is that negotiation? Yeah. Like the bargaining, the bargaining. Yeah. 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 If only this happened, um, if I was a better person, if I understood him more, if I understood addiction more. Yeah. And a lot of confusion because I still don't know what I was supposed to do. <laughs> You know, 15 episodes into a podcast, you'd think I would feel differently. 
I think this is why we're having these conversations because I don't, I, I, I agree. You know, as you're describing your experience, I mean, it resonates with me. Um, I think I went through a lot of those too. Maybe this is why this article that I found resonated so much because a lot of my reactions were like, wait a minute, I didn't get to say goodbye. I didn't see this coming. This wasn't when this was supposed to happen. And I really quickly turned it into, I couldn't protect him. I know my, you know, in my work role, in my clinical role in training, I mean, I work in mental health and addiction. So like, I couldn't do better. I couldn't, I couldn't reach him better. I couldn't do better for all of you that I let you down, mom down, Zoe down. For me, that grief was kind of coiled up in my own evaluation of myself and what I missed and what I could have done better for him. So um, that right there is is guilt, right? Yeah. You would say that you feel guilty? Yeah. How do you deal with that guilt? You know, I think there was a lot of so I was just reading like Elizabeth Kubler Ross, right? And some of her stages. And then the other phases of grief that I've been looking at were written by John Bowlby, a psychologist. He looks at grief through this emotional attachment perspective. He talks about phases of mourning. And um, this one to me was kind of a little deeper. It was more emotional. So the shock and the numbness as like kind of like the first phase kind of in line with like Kubler-Ross's stages of denial, but, you know, he talks about like the shock and the numbness. And I, I remember the moment that the call came. Like, these are moments that we never forget in our life. It was so stupid. I was watching, we were watching a, a Seinfeld episode and I was eating sunflower seeds, like in the shell. And I remember the call came through and listening to Christian on the phone, receiving this information. And I was kind of like half on the TV and half. And I knew, like, you know, when there's bad news and you just know, even then there was this like shock and numbness and not wanting to hear what I knew I was about to hear. I'll never forget that moment. And, you know, in the beginning, it was all shock and numbness and just trying to process but for me, it began to change because, you know, that feeling of guilt was, you know, what Bowlby sometimes he refers to as yearning and searching. And I think I, I was searching for understanding and searching for comfort, you know, and searching for, I don't know, some sort of meaning and comfort to. Um, comfort for Dennis. For him. And for all of us. So I don't know. Um, you know, he talks about stages of despair and disorganization where we, you know, we're questioning ourselves and feeling angry and, you know, like it's, it's difficult and it's kind of aimless and we're stuck. But, you know, for me, there was like this combination of like searching and then feeling disorganized and then, you know, and then, and then moving into this, like, feeling more hopeful, um, feeling a little bit more healed. There was a level of like acceptance. Okay. This has happened. There's nothing we can do about it. And, 
you know, and, and then moving into like meaning making, right? And the meaning making is good. It feels good. And if I'm in that stage, I, I feel good, like, because it's hopeful. But, you know, the yearning and the searching and the despair are still there. And I can really easily fall into that. So you see that as something to fall into. That's how I, that's, that's how I'm experiencing it, you know, and like, and when that happens, those waves are really high, you know, and they really overwhelm me. And I have moments of just absolute overwhelm and sadness and despair. And then it subsides a little and I kind of, you know, fall into, I don't know, I reconnect with him in some way, or I reconnect with things that feel hopeful and, and then I can accept it and be okay. But I, one thing I can't relate to is I don't really feel like they're absolute stages that move in an order. When I think about my brother and when I think about what I miss about him, I always go back to when we worked together as courier drivers. And I first worked with him. I was his runner. He would drive and I would run the parcels to the door. And oh my God, did we have a freaking blast. And it lasted for like two years, three years. And back then he was my best friend and my older brother. And I don't necessarily miss the way he was a year ago. It was frustrating. It was, it was frustrating and the whole situation is frustrating. What do you do? I'm here. I'm taking everything in and it's just, it's a really hard, hard thing to talk about. Is it good to talk about, Lara? <laughs> <laughs> like, is is this good? What do you think? Does it feel good to talk about it in this way? Yeah, yeah, it does. It doesn't make anything uh, better. No. But it... <laughs> It's nice to talk about him. If he could be here with us, what would he say? Stop being an idiot, Daniel. <laughs> Just, I don't know, like, no matter what is said or done at this point, I go back to the same frustrated state of mind because no matter what, there's nothing that I can do to change it. So it's just frustrating. You go right to that radical acceptance. This has happened. There's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. And it makes me so mad. It makes me so angry. Because nothing is going to change the fact of it. 
There's good days and there's bad days. But it never gets easier. You know, like, you don't wake up and just miss him any less or... I don't miss him any less. I don't... My 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 state of mind towards the whole situation doesn't change. You just learn to live with everything that's happened. So, if he had passed away in a different way, would this conversation sound the same? Probably not. I mean, it wouldn't make it um, any less sad that he's gone. But I think just how strong my feelings are towards addiction makes it um, makes it challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the things that I've, you know, even coming into the podcast, it's like, you know, we don't want to define him by no (laughs) the way that he died doesn't take away from the fact that he was a person who was valued and loved and so when we celebrate his life and all that he meant to us that's not about addiction but i wonder if like what makes this conversation hard is because there's so much stigma around addiction and when somebody passes away because of an accidental drug overdose, there's complexity to how we process this. And so in addition to, you know, grief as part of losing somebody, you know, there's all these other reactions that we may be having, right? We may be struggling with unanswered questions. We may be struggling with wanting to place blame or wanting to place something somewhere and really not being able to necessarily. I know at work, when I was explaining to people at work, I said he died of a heart attack. I didn't want to get into the whole addiction thing that, you know. Yeah. I feel like if it was, you know, a different, like different reasoning behind why he passed away. Like, you know, it's not like he got older and he had health issues if it wasn't for drugs and his addiction he would still be here right now he didn't get sick and 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 pass away he had an addiction with which resulted in him no longer being here anymore i think it makes it that much harder knowing that there was nothing wrong with him. This happened because of, of of an addiction. So if you think about addiction as being a healthcare issue, if we look at addiction as an illness, then does that mean that he died as a result of an illness? I mean, I know, I know addiction is a, is an illness. I know that it's a disease, but I guess in my eyes, it falls under a different category of an illness. 
I want to say there's a choice in the matter, but I, I, I can't bring myself to say that because nobody chooses to want this, like we spoke about so many times. But it also falls within certain choices that people have made throughout their lives where it winds up being an addiction. You don't become an addict unless you try drugs. So certain things during your life work its way up to you becoming an addict. Not that it's a a choice that you want to become an addict, but there was a choice in the matter of either trying drugs or not trying them. You don't become an addict if you don't try drugs. But nobody goes in to use a drug and says, I'm doing this because I want to fucking die or I want to become an addict. That's Mm -hmm. not the choice you're making. Yes, you're making a choice to use the substance or whatever it is, but you're not making your life like at that moment, you're not making a lifelong choice to become an addict. You're not saying I'm doing this because I want to fucking kill myself tonight. Like that first time you try drugs. Yes, it's a choice, but it's not a lifelong choice that you're planning on making. Nobody chooses to become an addict. Nobody chooses to to live a life like that. And that's why I think it's it's so much different. That's the only way I can explain the difference between if he had passed from another medical disease rather than an overdose. There's a choice there, but it wasn't meant to be a lifelong decision-altering choice. Yeah. So let me read something. Tell me if you like this. So things that may help. Understand addiction. Learning about this disease may help you to know that you are powerless over addiction. All the money and love in the world cannot beat addiction. So understanding the struggle your loved one had may decrease feelings of guilt rather than having them spiral into unhealthy and untruthful proportions. You agree? So (laughs) when they say all the love and money in the world cannot beat addiction, God, that's so depressing because that's, you know, what else does a family have? Family's got love, family's got money. When I was an active user, I knew I loved my kids. I knew I loved them, but I also knew that they were taken care of. And in that point in time of my life, using was the most important thing and I hate saying it I hate that it was a fact but it was and that's what it was you know like using was the most important thing at that point in my life I knew I loved my family my mom my kids my dad you know I I knew I did more than you know what I'm saying more than anything but the most important thing to me was using so it's true all the money all the love in the world does not matter I have so much respect for you saying that in that way and I think that we can all sort of dig a little deep and connect to that whether it's with drugs or something else because that's a human experience that i think most of us can connect to and when you say i knew my kids were taken care of kind of invites us into that it's not just all or nothing it's not just one way or another 
that sometimes there's a few different conditions that are happening. And so it is possible to be engaging in this lifestyle and doing what you're doing and even being away and still loving your family and loving your kids and loving your po- your your spouse or your partner. It's anything but black and white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's anything but black and white. Yeah. Yeah. So we know, I know Dennis didn't, Dennis, you know, Dennis spent so much time trying to protect us from his struggle, you know, and sometimes it would spill out because I think for most of his life, he, it was a very private experience for him. And he spent a lot of time trying to kind of keep it private. He was a very private person. Yes. And so when it spilled out, he hated that. He really hated that, eh? I agree. And he hated it because he knew that wasn't him. I don't even know. You look so heavy, Zoe. I feel heavy. Yeah. So I, okay, so this is what I want to say. The way your dad died is not your fault, Zoe. I just want you to know that that's how I feel about it. I don't blame you. And I don't think that there was something that you could have done or not done to change what happened. I think what happened happened. And earlier when you talked about radical acceptance, I, you know, I have these moments where I just radically accept um, this happened. What I'm most angry about is the state of our toxic drug supply that doesn't give people a chance to survive. Yeah. Because your dad was really good at substances. He was really good at managing his own pain with substances. Yeah. Um, he knew what he was doing. And he was a risk taker. And he was a calculating risk taker. And it's kind of like a crapshoot. Like he he kind of rolled the dice and he got a bad dose. But what I know is that you didn't do anything wrong. And it wasn't on you to make sure he came out of this. You're his kid. It wasn't your job to take care of your dad. It was your dad's job to take care of you. And he thought about you. He was always wanting to support and take care of you. And sometimes that was confusing because we didn't understand how he was taking care of you. But he was always taking care of you. Yeah. And I just want you to hear loud and clear, like you didn't do anything wrong. Everything that you're doing right now is it's, it's selfless. Like it's very, what you're doing right now is very generous because our whole family is healing and our whole family is being given an opportunity to talk about things that are difficult and hard and to examine how how this all went down right and how as a family we coped whether that coping was helpful or not helpful but you know there's right now we're sitting with the uncomfortableness of working with transparency and openness and just trying to examine and allowing our family to be a template for what may be going on with other families because we love and care for people and because we know that there's problems that need to be talked about. We need to find better and different ways of connecting with people and supporting one another. Mm-hmm.